This morning's scripture is from the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, verses 8 through 21. Hear the word of the Lord. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, and find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is why it is said, Wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful, then, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is God's Word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time to gather before you to sing your praise truly Father God, Son, Holy Spirit, you alone are worthy of all of our adoration, of all of our praise. Lord, we humble ourselves before you. We thank you that you are the Holy One, the Righteous One, the One who reigns supreme over everything. Lord, you are so unlike us in many ways, and yet, Father, you call us intimately into your presence. You don't keep us at arm's length or at a distance. And Lord, we know that it's not because of the fact that we're good. It's not because of anything that we've earned with you. It's simply because of the perfect work of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And so, Lord, we come to you now humbly and with great thanksgiving. We praise your name, Jesus. We love you, Lord. Father, we pray for the victims of Hurricane Matthew, not just here in the United States, but in so many other places, so many other islands that have been devastated by the storm. Father, we pray that you would do your good work in these places. We pray for your church in these places and that you would bring good out of destruction. Father God, we lift up this morning churches in our area. And we thank you for them. We thank you for the work that they are doing in our community. We pray particularly this morning for Mecklenburg Community Church right around the corner from us. We thank you for James Emery White, the senior pastor there, and for all the staff. And we thank you that as they meet right now in worship, Father, we pray your blessing upon their service. We pray you would continue to do a good work in them and through them in this community. Father, we pray for our sister church, First Presbyterian and Stanley this morning, Scott Deneen, the pastor there. We ask, Father, that you would let them continue to shine as a light there. Lord, may your people at First Pres Stanley be encouraged this morning. But we think about nearby up in Huntersville, Grace Community, Pastor Farrell Lemming, and the many people who are there. We ask, Lord, that you would meet with them this morning. You would open your word to them in power and in truth. 
Lord, that maybe even this morning, in any of these three churches we've prayed for, that someone would come to faith for the first time, or that someone would be brought from darkness into your wonderful light. Father, thank you for these three churches and all the others surrounding us. May you continue to build your kingdom in this community and use us as you see fit at Stonebridge to do that very thing too, Father. Lord Jesus, we submit ourselves to you now, the living word, and ask that you would open this passage to us today. Glorify only your name, Jesus, and do your perfect work in our midst through the power of Holy Spirit. It's in your name we pray. Amen. If you are visiting with us, we've been going through the book of Ephesians for a while, and we just have a few more weeks as we conclude this. We've called this series an identity crafted by grace because that's one of the major themes we see throughout this book is that Paul's constantly reminding believers who you are in Jesus Christ, what your identity is and what that means. And we'll see him do that again today. I don't know about you, but these things I do not like whatsoever. You know, uh, treadmill, I don't like running, so, you know, and if I'm going to run, I'll do it outside, but to get on one of these things honestly feels like punishment to me. Um, and, And, you know, and I know runners here at Stonebridge, and many of them, if they are given a choice any day of the week, they'll run outside you know, on a trail in nature, somewhere else, rather than in the monotonous, you know, treadmill experience. And I don't think I'm too far off it seeming like punishment, because if you know the origin of the treadmill, this, they kind of came back into popularity in the 70s during the, you know, jogging craze. But originally, you didn't find treadmills in health clubs, you found them in prisons in Victorian England. And the origin of the treadmill tread wheels, as they were called back then, was this is how they punished prisoners. And so what they would do is that prisoners for up to six hours per day would turn these large tread wheels by stepping on the spokes one after another. Six hours of this, and typically, sometimes they would grind grain or power water or something, but often all it was was to pay a debt to society and do some manual labor. And so often a prisoner at the end of six grueling hours on this machine, there was nothing to show for it. And all they could hope for is that one day maybe I've paid my debt to society enough that I'll be set free. Now I use that for a couple of reasons. One is that I think a treadmill can be a good illustration of religion. Because religion will often say, get on the treadmill, pay your debt to God or whoever you're working it off to, and then after a while, well, you know, you're working really hard, but you feel like you're honestly getting nowhere. And that's one of the reasons I can't stand a treadmill. There's a lot of energy, and you you just get nowhere. Religion can be like that, is you are on this cycle of shame and guilt and trying to prove yourself to someone— and yet religion gets you nowhere. You're expending tons of energy. Christianity is not like that. Because in Christianity, I think we've been set free by God's grace in Jesus Christ to run the trails of freedom. 
to walk in a way that you're not trying to prove yourself or pay a debt, but you're walking in His grace, and it's a walk of freedom and of joy and of gladness. And I, I use that because that's what Paul talks about today, because he regularly uses the word walk. Sometimes it's translated live here in our passage, but what we see today is that Paul, this whole section encompasses Paul talking about walking the Christian life. And it breaks very neatly into three segments here. Verses 8 to 14, walking in obedience. Verses 15 to 17, walking in wisdom. And then verses 18 to 21, walking in joy. So let's look at this as Paul talks about it. The first thing is Paul says the Christian life is one of walking in obedience. Verses 8 to 14. For you were once darkness, but you are now light in the Lord. Live, or literally walk, as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, and find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes light. This is why it said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Now, once again, we have Paul saying, here's your identity. Christians, who are you in Jesus Christ? And here he says, you now are light in the Lord. He's saying, when God looks at you, how you should think about yourself, how you should view yourself is the same way that God views you. And in grace... God views you as light, as beautiful, as holy, as righteous, as the words he says in verse 9, good, righteous, and true. God sees you as beautiful. You are children of light because God is light. And Paul says now, because you're light, live as children of light. But let's not skip too quickly over how he set this up to begin with because he says, you were once darkness And honestly, this is a rather in-your-face statement by Paul, and our culture hates this because our culture will constantly push up the inherent goodness of humanity. People are basically good, and they do bad things. That's not what the Bible says because look at what Paul says here. You were once darkness. And the reason I say this is in-your-face is he's not saying you were once in darkness darkness. You were darkness. And and see, that's what Christians understand, is that we don't just live in an evil, wicked world. We're part of it. We are part of the problem. Inside the heart of all of humanity, there is evil. There is darkness. And that's the contrast. Darkness stands for sin and wickedness unholiness, where light stands for things like righteousness, goodness, truth. And Paul's saying, you weren't just in it, you were it, but no longer. You see, our, our society chafes against that, the concept that people are born in sin. The Bible tells us you are born in sin, you continue to sin. It's not just that you were surrounded by it, you did it. You were it. That was part of who you were inherently, but no longer in Christ. Who are you? 
And, and this is a radical identity shift here. You were darkness no longer. Not because of anything good and inherent in you, but because of the righteousness, the light of God in Jesus Christ that shines in your life so that now you can walk as children of light. You know, we hear testimonies all the time of people when they're joining the church talking about how they knew they didn't just live in darkness, but darkness was in them. And you hear words like, you know, I constantly, I was trying really hard, and yet I constantly had shame. I constantly had dissatisfaction. I constantly had discouragement. I constantly had emptiness. But then the light of God shined in my life. And some stories, it's almost like a laser beam spotlight where the darkness is dissipated. And for others, the story is the light slowly diffused the darkness. But the, the testimony is often, I felt and I knew the darkness, and now Christ has changed me. And you know where that change came from? It's from hearing the gospel. That there's a God who loves you, who loves you so much that He sent His only Son to die on the cross for you, to take your sins on Himself, and to give you His righteousness. And now Jesus actually indwells in you by power of Holy Spirit and shines His light in your life. That's for most of us, in some level, the story of our lives. And if you're here this morning, and if you would say, well, you know, my story is more reminiscent of what you said a moment ago, the discouragement, the dissatisfaction, the shame, the emptiness, the good news is that in Jesus Christ, that story of renewal can be yours too. You don't have to be stuck living in the darkness. The good news is that sin is very bad, but grace is so much better. That's why on your bulletin covers, I put on there that quote from the Westminster Confession of Faith, and this is in modern English, where it says, no sin, there is no sin so small that it does not deserve damnation. Now think about that for a minute. Even if you had just one sin in your life, and it was a tiny one, you said one little white lie at one point, and that's all you ever did that was wrong. Now, okay, come on. If you know Dave, you know, I mean, that is not true. You're not unlike Dave. Even if you had the smallest sin, though, one, one little thought of selfishness, one little, one little moment of greed, or one little moment of apathy, you know what? Even that smallest of sin, you know what it deserves? condemnation, because that's the testimony of God's Word, is that all sin is worthy of separation from God, because sin does that in us. But here's the good news. The bad news is really bad, but the good news is that nor is there any sin so great that it can bring damnation upon those who truly repent. You know, maybe this morning you know all too well. It's not that I think my sin's too little. I know my sin really well, and I want to be set free Here's the good news. Repent and turn to Jesus Christ and His light will shine in your life. You will be made a child of light. That's why Paul says, those who are children of light, you will walk in it habitually. You will want to. And here's the distinction. Not to try to prove yourself to God. 
You see, a Christian walks in obedience not to prove themselves or to justify themselves to God. You can't. You walk in obedience because now you yourself are light in Jesus Christ. You want to. You desire it. You see, walking in obedience isn't trying to get God to love you. It's that you have that love, and now you live that out. And you walk as a reflection of the light that's been given to you. Let me give you just a simple illustration of this. I love reading about Corrie ten Boom. They were Dutch Christians, best known for hiding Jews during the Nazi persecution. And the picture up there, that's Corey on the far right. And, and you know the story if you read The Hiding Place and other books. Uh, her father was, got out of a prison, died 10 days later, lost her sisters, lost her brother. Horrific. But she tells a story about when she was a young girl and before all of that stuff happened. And her father was a watchmaker and he opened up a little jewelry shop. And as they were getting this business started, times were really hard. The, fa- the family was literally praying for their daily bread and trusting God for every single day because they didn't know where the next meal was coming from. And Corey says, I was about nine or ten years old, and a wealthy individual walked in my father's shop and wanted to buy a watch. And he chose the most expensive watch in the shop And I got so excited as I saw him hand over cash paying for this watch because I knew that amount of money was going to feed our family for months. And then something happened. The man buying the watch said the reason he was buying it was because this piece wouldn't work for him. And he had bought it not that long ago from a different watchmaker. And so what happened, Casper Ten Boone, Corey's father, said, well, let me see that. He opened it up got his tools, and within about two minutes, handed it back to the man and said, here, this watch will work perfectly for you now. There was just a little thing wrong with it. I guarantee you it'll serve you well. So if you want to take it, take your money back, and you can give me my watch back. And the man agreed. And he walked out as Casper held the door open for him. And Corey, as soon as she said, as soon as my dad closed the door, I ran up to him. What are you thinking? What are you doing, Dad? And she said, my dad looked at me with great patience and said, Corey, think about this. That young watchmaker that the man bought that watch from, what would he do when he heard that I had stolen one of his customers over a little thing? Would that glorify Jesus? Would that cause that young watchmaker to praise the name of our king? I don't think so. And Corey, I want you to know that our God owns the cattle on a thousand hills and he'll provide today just as he provided every day. And Corey went away from that thinking about how her father sought to walk with the Lord in obedience, not in just the great big visible ways, but in all the ways that nobody would have even known. Because that's what a believer does, is walk in obedience, living as a child of light, even when no one else might see it. Now, we, always, we typically get that, okay? We understand there's rules, there's a commandments, there's things to be obeyed, and so we walk in obedience. But Paul says, I want you to know that's not all there is to living this Christian life. In fact, equally important to walking in obedience is this one, walking in wisdom. 
verses 15 to 17, Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. And Paul discusses wisdom here because he says walking the Christian life is way more than just obeying the moral rules. I hope you get that. You know, it's, it's knowing how to live in the big proportion of life where the moral rules don't apply. Because let's face it, the, the moral rules, the Decalogue, and the other rules of Scripture, they might comprise, I, I don't know, 10%, 15%, 25% of life. But the vast majority of life isn't where it's black and white spelled out for you. It's actually a matter of walking in wisdom. And let me give you an example of this, because this is one I deal with all the time. How do I know whether I should take this job or not? Okay, here's an example where the moral rules apply. You get one offer, and it's a standard sales job. You get another job offer, and it's a sales job, but you know that the things that you're selling were produced by slave labor in Asia. Okay, that's a pretty easy one. You choose this one over that one if those are the only two choices because this one will violate moral conduct. It goes against very clearly certain things that Scripture tells us. But most jobs aren't like that. You know, what I usually deal with is men and women coming to me and saying, well, I've been offered a promotion, but I've also been offered these other two jobs. How do I know which one to take? And there's nothing morally that will direct you to choose one versus two or three. So how do you make that decision? Same thing is true, young people. If you're here and you're single today, you know, I do not believe that there is only one person in life that you can marry. Now, most of us who are married would say, it's amazing how God brought me to my spouse. I got Anne in a moment of weakness, you know, because I married up and she married down. But, you know, she wasn't the one and only person I could have married in life. I asked people at lunch this week, who did you pray for to marry before you actually married your spouse? Nobody wanted to answer that one. But the point is because even as a young person, there are many people you could marry. Now, as a Christian, if that person you're looking at marrying isn't a believer, okay, that's very clear. No go. Because you will be unequally yoked with somebody else. So that's an easy one. That's pretty black and white by God's Word. But most of the time, there's a lot of people you could marry. And it's a wisdom choice more than it is a morality choice. So think about working here. What Paul gets at, you may say, well, how in the world do you make these kinds of choices? And what it centers around is this. Why? Why are you making this decision? Because when you think about it, as Paul talks about walking, when you walk, you're going somewhere. There's a direction that your walk is taking you. And in every decision you make in life, there's a directional focus to that. Where are your decisions taking you? Why are you choosing to go this way versus that way? Because this has impact on your soul. This has impact on the people around you. So let's go back to the job thing. Is it okay to make money? Yes. Okay. Yes, it's okay. I know you're scared to answer. Is it okay to make a lot of money? 
Yes, it's okay. Because even in the Bible, you see people like Job and Abraham and David and others. So wealth isn't necessarily a problem, but the love of wealth is a real problem. So it's okay even to make a lot of money. And so it's not just, well, I make more here or there. How do you know? Well, let me ask you, why are you choosing this job versus that one? And if your answer goes like this, well, because this one will let me make more money so that I can be more comfortable in life, or I'll have more prestige, or I'll have more power, or it's just one more rung on the ladder of success, I would challenge you to think about that because every single one of those answers is very selfishly motivated. It's about your kingdom. It's about your ease. It's about your power, your respect, whatever. You are the center of that decision. You see, when you're making a choice, whereas there's no morality distinction there, why are you making it? I've dealt with people who are trying to decide on a job It's like, okay, if you take this job, how demanding is it going to take you, and will it take you away from serving Christ in different ways? Are you going to be so exhausted because now you take this promotion, now they're expecting a 70-hour work week out of you? Is that what's best for your spiritual life? Okay, it may help your pocketbook. You see, this isn't a morality thing, it's a wisdom thing. And it's actually okay if you choose it, but it may not be the best thing for your soul. It may not be the best thing for your family. It may not be the best thing for the souls of those that you're going to be working with. Wisdom says, why am I wanting this? And and wisdom will also tell you this. Because you know this from the book of Jeremiah. The heart is what, above all else? Deceitful. The heart is deceitful above all else. And I guarantee you, we rationalize our decisions like crazy. And we know, okay, this one will actually let me spend more time with my family. This will let me actually spend more time in service of Christ and in building his kingdom. But this one, this one's going to make me wealthy. This one may let me retire five years early. And then we start justifying it. Well, what, you know, if I retire, then I can really do kingdom work early. And we start falling into this pattern of our hearts can really deceive us. You see, wisdom is the vast majority of life. That's why Paul says in verse 16, you've got to make the most of every opportunity. What he's literally saying is you've got to redeem the time. You and I, we've been given a very finite amount of time on this planet. And every choice we make, particularly the wisdom choices, impact how we redeem the time. Paul's saying, you want to know what you should decide? Surrender that decision completely to the Lord. Lord, what do you want? Not what do I want. What do you want for my family? What do you want for my soul? What do you want? And I will follow you in this no matter what. And it doesn't mean you always just take the lesser thing. But it's surrendering your will to him rather than saying, Lord, you just bless what I decide anyway. You see, this book is not just some little rule book. Okay, Lord, what job do you want me to get? Uh, We praise you for you sit enthroned. Okay, so I choose the job where I'll sit at a desk chair more than others. Got it, Lord. Thank you. You know, that's treating this like some magical thing. That's not how this works. You don't just proof text, 
by pointing to a verse. Wisdom actually requires you to do the hard work of prayer, of seeking the Lord diligently, and surrendering yourself to Him constantly. What do you want, Lord? You do have to follow the commandments God gives us. Don't hear me wrong in that. But know that the commandments of God, they're a small part of life. The wisdom applies to most of life. And that's why we have so many wisdom books in the Bible about how to wisely walk in this short amount of time that we've been given by the Lord. Redeem the time. Redeem the time. And what Paul's getting at is walking in wisdom is no less important than walking in obedience. They're equally important. And then finally, Paul goes into walking the Christian life is about obedience, it's about wisdom, but it's also about joy. Verses 18 to 21, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music to your heart, from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. All right, just for a moment, I'm stepping on a soapbox. I'll get off it in a moment, I promise you. The Bible very clearly prohibits drunkenness, not drinking, okay? Drunkenness, not drinking is what's prohibited. However, it is my firm conviction that far too many Christians are far too casual with their own drinking. And this is something that can get you by the throat so easily. This is a wisdom decision, friends. And I have seen too many lives ruined because someone was far too casual with drinking and it got a hold of their throat and then destroyed their job and destroyed their marriage and their family. Okay, drunkenness is prohibited but be wise. And someone didn't like me saying this, but I'll stand by it. I, I, I will drink wine. It's about the only drink I like. But I will tell you, I firmly believe nothing good truly comes from drinking. You know, I mean, yes, it's allowable. And sometimes in social settings, it's fine. But nothing good comes from it. And I challenge you, if you say, no, no, but, 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 these good things, I'll challenge you that maybe those are rationalizations. Because I didn't say this first hour because I didn't want to, but I'll tell you. <laughs> I had a pattern of time where I would drink a glass of wine every night. It was one glass, one glass. Red wine, it's good for the heart, right? And my wife said, why? And my answer was, because I can. <laughs> she goes, yeah, and? What are you maybe teaching your daughters by doing this every night? You know, I could. And I could have, and it says don't get drunk. I'm just drinking one. Uh, the Lord really brought some conviction in my life where I cut it back. 
Because it, it was like, okay, it's a wisdom thing. And I don't want you to get legalistic on this, and I'm not trying to be legalistic on it, but I want you to know that far too often we are far too casual with this thing. Okay, off the soapbox. <laughs> Let me ask you this. How many of you are planning to, after the service today, go out and get blitzed? <laughs> okay, you say, well, after this sermon, Rick, maybe, but... <laughs> No, I mean, we all laugh because it's, it's stupid. We don't go to church and then say, okay, well, I came to church so I can go home and hit the bar and get blitzed or whatever. Let me ask you this. How many of you are willing to go home today not filled with Holy Spirit? You see, that's what Paul's getting at here. You've you got to ask yourself, why is Paul comparing and contrasting being drunk with wine and being filled with Holy Spirit? Because he's saying that Christians are meant to experience a deep, abiding, overflowing joy in life. And you can get that from drink. And the way that works, you know, medical doctors will tell you, and uh, I was reading this earlier this week by someone, that alcohol, you know it's a depressant. And here's what happens. You're under anxiety. You're having bad circumstances. You're just kind of, you know, uh, moody in life. And so what do you do? You seek to numb certain things, because that's what alcohol does. It literally depresses portions of the brain so you don't feel those things as much, and then you feel happier. It suppresses your awareness of your problems. Paul's saying, don't go that route for joy. Be filled with Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit, rather than suppressing, it actually activates you. Holy Spirit's a stimulant in the sense it doesn't make you less aware of your problems. It makes you more aware of your resources in Jesus Christ. You see, you can still be under the same problems, but when you're under influence of Holy Spirit, it gives you an awareness of the power of God in your life through Holy Spirit. It gives you an awareness of the gospel, and the gospel transcends any circumstance. That's why Paul could sing in prison. You know, he was unjustly put there, and he was tortured, and yet the man's singing. Why? Because he's under influence of Holy Spirit, and he's made aware of all the resources he has in Jesus Christ. Is anyone here sick of the election? Yeah. Why do I get an amen on that more than anything else? (laughs) Yeah, I am too. But you know what? Holy Spirit reminds us our hope is not in this country. Our hope is not in whoever is our next president. Yes, we should be involved. But if your candidate doesn't win, don't get depressed because you have a king that we are here today worshiping who sits on the throne and reigns over everything and who holds every single man and woman and child to account. Nothing happens without his consent. No one will get away with anything. All injustice will be dealt with one day because Holy Spirit will remind you there's a greater reality. There's a greater kingdom than the United States of America, and you are part of it, friends. You're part of the kingdom that was established by God eons ago and continues until Jesus Christ comes again, and it's a kingdom that will never be shaken. That's our reality. And you have a king who's worthy of all honor and glory. 
Holy Spirit. You see, when you're under influence of the Holy Spirit, you are reminded of the gospel. You were darkness. You were crappy. You screwed up like crazy. And you still do. But in Jesus Christ, you are holy and righteous, and God is doing a good work in you, and He'll bring it to completion. And when you have that, and you're filled with Holy... You see, Holy Spirit constantly points you to the resources you have in Jesus Christ. And when you have that flowing in you like a mighty river, joy comes bubbling up everywhere. You're filled, as it says here, giving thanks to the Father. You can't help but sing and make music from your heart to the Lord because when you're under influence of the Holy Spirit, it just happens. You can't help it. I love how Tom Wright says this because he talks about, you know, singing in church. Why do we sing and what's, you know, what's the big deal of all this? It's not just something we do. There's many reasons for singing. Here's one. He writes, Paul doesn't see these hymns and songs as simply decorative, a pleasant oral embroidery around Christian faith and practice. Singing, whether aloud or in your heart, was, he thought, an excellent way of actually practicing your faith. If you don't want your garden to grow weeds, one of the best ways is to keep it well stocked with strong, sturdy flowers and shrubs. If you don't want your mind and heart to go wandering off into the realms of darkness, one of the best ways is to keep them well stocked with wise and thankful themes so that words of comfort, guidance, and good judgment come bubbling up unbidden from the memory and subconscious. Hymns and psalms today can still provide exactly this kind of Christian nurture. They are not merely entertainment. They are instruction, consolation, warning, and hope. The singing that Paul has in mind is the ultimate antidote to living in the darkness of immorality that pervades the surrounding world. That's why we sing. We sing because we can't help it. We sing to practice our faith. You know, and this could be a soapbox. I'll I'll make it short. The worship wars drive me nuts. Well, we need to sing more hymns. We need to sing more contemporary songs. We need to sing more praise songs. We need to do less music. We need to do more music. We need... Oh, my goodness. It's not about that, friends. All that typically boils down to is personal aesthetic and personal preference. What Paul's saying is this. If you're filled and under influence of Holy Spirit, it doesn't matter whether it's a psalm, a hymn, spiritual song, praise chorus. It doesn't matter whether the music's great or horrible. You will sing from your heart to the Lord. And the question isn't, well, do you think the, the music team did well today? Yeah, I'll give you an eight, Dave. That's not, the, that's not the question. The question should be, did I sing from my heart to the Lord this morning? Did I connect my heart with God in song and in praise and in submission to Him? And you know what? We'll do that imperfectly. We'll do it poorly at times. I love it when our kids sing. And you know, and you get the five-year-old who's just totally off-key, and they're right in front of the microphone, and they're belting it out like crazy. And what do we do? We love it. Yeah, it's shrieking, and it's, it, it, it's a little painful, but we love it. Why? Because we take delight in them as they're singing from their heart. And you know what? You could have the worst voice here this morning. I'll put mine up against yours. But if you sing from your heart, 
to the Lord. It's worship that our God accepts in spirit and in truth. It's a heart that overflows with joy. When you're overcome with Holy Spirit, you can't help it. I love this poem from Robert Lowry. I believe it was the inspiration for this last song we're about to sing. My life flows on an endless song. Above earth's lamentation, I hear the real, though far off hymn, that hails a new creation. No storm can shake my inmost calm while to that rock I'm clinging. It sounds an echo in my soul. How can I keep from singing? May we do that today and every day. Father God, forgive us for the times that we make life about us when we walk into disobedience, when we walk in selfishness and lack of wisdom. Father, when we walk joylessly, seeking to find our joy in stupid things because our hearts aren't filled with Holy Spirit. Lord, You are the only fount of true joy in this life. Help us, Lord. Jesus, make us vessels that are fit and willingly surrendered to You that we can be filled by You. Holy Spirit, we pray You would come and fill us even now. As Paul says, this wasn't a one-time thing. It was a perpetual, ongoing filling. And Lord, we need that even now. So come, Holy Spirit, and fill us. Fill us with life and hope and with joy. Lord, we give you our tithes and our offerings now, asking that you would take your kingdom around the world, that others might be called from darkness into light, so that others may see how beautiful and wonderful you are, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.